you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to John chapter 1, John chapter 12 actually, let's go to John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, Miss Diane read those for us, and uh, really want to think for a moment of how powerful the sense of smell is. I mean, smell is so powerful that it really can affect all parts of our body. You can walk into a room and smell can actually drop you to your knees. There are some instances where smell causes your mouth to water. Or you might walk into a place you haven't been in a while and smell brings a memory to your mind. Aroma and fragrance kind of just bleed off of our pages of the passage this morning. Maybe it's actually literally in the context and story there, a fragrance in the room. Or it's kind of implied, and we can kind of almost smell the hatred and bitterness that bleeds from the pages. I want us to look at five things this morning from this text, and really keeping with the fragrance of this passage, we're going to be looking at, number one, the fragrance of service. The fragrance of service. Number two, the fragrance of devotion. Number three, the fragrance of criticism. And then the fragrance of support. And in summary, really, in verses 9 through 11, we have the fragrance of belief and unbelief. And that's what I've entitled my sermon this morning, the fragrance of belief and unbelief. That's a theme for John. He uses believe or belief at least 98 times in his book. And really, every story, there's either two responses for those that encounter Christ. Either they walk away as a follower or they walk away as an opponent. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. The context of our passage and really the setting that we see there in the first few verses is six days before the Passover. And they're in a town called Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's actually the road that connects kind of on your journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is kind of where this town would meet, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And really, this is Palm Sunday And this isn't really the traditional text for that, but I want us to look to this night because this is the night before that triumphal entry. And really kind of gives us a feeling and sets the mood for what would happen the next day as some would celebrate and some would be looking on in disgust. Let's look first at the fragrance of service. We see there in the first two verses that setting there. And really, we need to have a background. I mean, we have this meal, this feast, this dinner that's being prepared. Just like any good meal, as you walk into a room, as you approach that house, there might be that actual smell of a dinner. But there's a background to this service that we see. And the background really takes us to the previous chapter. See, John gives us something that others don't in the gospel accounts. And at the end of John, I love the final verse. He writes, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a fascinating thought. 
to consider if they were to write every event, everything he spoke and did, the world could not contain those books. So these authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had to have a purpose, and they had a purpose directed by the Holy Spirit. They had an aim that they were trying to hit. John helps the reader, gives us a head start. In chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything John is writing, every story and the way he organizes is for the purpose and aim for you and I, anybody who encounters this book, to walk away knowing that Jesus is the Christ so that you may believe and have life. That's his aim. And he records a story that Matthew and Mark and Luke do not record. And that's the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. I'd actually like to look at a little bit of that. If you would turn to chapter 11, just flip back there to chapter 11, really verses 4 through 6, we'll read there. But the setting is, Jesus loved these three siblings. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he loved them. We'll actually look back here at a passage in a moment that actually gives a background to these two sisters, but he loved them dearly. Lazarus fell sick. They sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And in verse uh, 4 and through 6, here's Jesus' response. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, at first glance, you might say, that doesn't sound like love. Go heal this man. But Jesus had a purpose at hand. He knew that this was to bring glory to him. Many would believe because of this miracle. This miracle ripples out and actually finds a central place in our text this morning. Mary and Martha are very fascinating characters. Actually, if you turn back to Luke chapter 10, if you turn to Luke chapter 10, the last little paragraph there is given looking at Mary and Martha. There in Bethany, they see Jesus come and they, Martha invites him into her home. Doing what she does in our passage in chapter 12 of John, she is serving, preparing the meal, preparing the house. And Mary, yet again at the feet of Jesus, like we often see her, this bothers Martha. This gets to Martha. And she goes to the Lord, hey, Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus responds in verse 41, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Oh, what a rebuke from the Lord. What a challenge there. To know that, hey, she's looking to something better, and that's me. Mary was not distracted. 
Mary was at the feet of Jesus. Martha had missed the good thing, that one thing, which is Jesus Christ. And that kind of puts things in perspective. And chapter 11 of John, he goes on to say that once Lazarus dies, he comes back. Martha's the first one to meet him. Her response is, Lord, if you'd been here, he'd be here with us today. A broken woman, a hurting woman, being honest before Christ. If you were here, you could have prevented this. Jesus, loving her and instructing her, in verse 20 or verse 23, he says, Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the the world. What a Wonderful transformation, really, in Martha. At a very anxious and troubling time, she didn't lose sight of the good portion this time. She saw the one thing, and that's Jesus Christ, and her faith was placed in Christ. What a wonderful picture. She calls for Mary. Mary comes up, repeats the same statement before Christ. If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. We find one of the shortest or the shortest verse in our English Bible. Jesus wept. He loved them, cared for them. And it's what he would do next. He would go to the grave where you laid him. And it's where he calls Lazarus after four days in the grave to life. What a wonderful image. Martha even says, no, Lord, he stinks. You can't do this, but he powerful over the dead, raised him to life. What a wonderful image. The response already brings conflict. Many are blown away. As the morning party who came to comfort the two ladies, the sisters, they were there. Many believed, but it even said, though, some went to the religious leaders, to the chief priests and reported these things. Their conclusion was, he must die. Jesus must die, especially the chief priests. The chief priests were made up of Sadducees. Sadducees denied the resurrection. The problem was Jesus had a killer eyewitness, Lazarus, who, could raise, who was risen from the dead. There was hope found in Jesus Christ. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus can all attest to that. And that's really the setting of our passage These three are in Bethany. They're not at their home. We find out through Matthew and Mark they're at Simon the leper's home, which is fascinating because we know for them to be gathered in his home, he's not currently a leper. He's Simon the ex-leper. And he's one that could testify to the fact that Jesus has power to restore, to save. So this this group that's gathered to provide this meal and dinner is joy and excitement. They're thankful for what Christ has done in their lives. They can attest to that. It's such a beautiful image here. And really, we glean from 
Martha, in this context, what biblical service looks like. This fragrance of service. This biblical service first is rooted in worship. Biblical service is always rooted in worship. We saw at one point Martha had her motivation wrong. It was about herself. Just like all things in life, it's been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Everything has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And of course, service. In Romans 12.1, Paul transitioning into the application of this book. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All things have been redeemed for worship. Like all things, that's small things of life, have been redeemed for worship. The day-to-day duties of life have been redeemed for worship. Service is rooted in worship. We also see that biblical service is demonstrated by Christ. These three were probably disciples following Christ throughout his ministry. Might have even been present when Christ had instructed in teaching, had taught on serving others. There's actually a very fascinating story. Only Matthew and Mark record this. It's the uh, two brothers, James and John, coming to Christ and asking one to sit at his right and one to sit at his left. Mark records this and just says it's the two boys. Matthew says, nah, I was there. Let's get the facts straight. Mommy came and asked for James and John, one to sit at your right and one to sit at your left. Jesus goes on to instruct these disciples of his that that's not the Christian life. Those who would be great among you must be last. He actually says in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the demonstration. That's the example placed before you and I. Jesus demonstrates service. His whole ministry demonstrated that. Even at the most inconvenient times, he still served. Ministry is exhausting. People constantly coming and and, and wanting to see him, listening to him. Even says in Mark chapter 6, there's an instance where he tries to get away with his disciples. Let's rest. The crowds see him. They follow him. His response is not frustration. His response is not, please leave. Instead, it says, when he went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Biblical service is demonstrated by Jesus Christ. Lastly, really the heart of this passage, biblical service is rooted in gratitude. Martha was serving because of what the works, mighty works of Jesus Christ. Her brother was right there now. He was dead for four days. He is alive today. She thought, I'm excited to put my hands to work. I am thankful for Jesus Christ. I'm not going to forget this. We can't forget this. 
I think of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the wings of eagles. What a wonderful thought as she's preparing this meal for the man that had done far greater for her in bringing her brother back to life. What a beautiful image of service brought about by thankfulness. Brought about by thankfulness. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One commentator on this passage recalled walking into a kitchen of a family member, and over the sink was a sign that read, Divine service held here three times a day. I thought that's an interesting thought there. Really, that should flow into the rest of our lives. As we've already mentioned, all things have been redeemed. So if you are a child or a youth, a teenager, your schoolwork is your service. It's your worship. I mean, that's what you're offering up to the Lord Jesus. Lawn work now has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, and you do it for the glory and exaltation of Christ. Dishes, laundry. I mean, we're talking about the things that we don't enjoy doing. That has been redeemed, and that should be given over to Christ. Small things in life are opportunities for worship and praise to Jesus Christ. Will you praise him for life? I mean, we, we, on this side of the cross, as we've been bought and redeemed as Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, going back down, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You were Lazarus spiritually and been brought to life. Gratitude should overwhelm your life in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he's called us to as believers in Jesus Christ, to serve the Lord. Do you struggle with that? Life is inconvenient at times. A phone call for help and assistance is often inconvenient. We're to look to Christ as our example to service. So the fragrance of service We also have the fragrance of devotion. Let's look again at verse 3 of our passage. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, the fragrance of devotion. That's what we see from Mary. Merriam Dictionary defines devotion as the fact or state of being dedicated and loyal. That's true of the believer's life. We are dedicated and loyal to Jesus Christ. Dedicated and loyal. We see that biblical devotion is sacrificial first. We see that from Judas, and we'll look at here in a moment, he, he prices this perfume at 300 denarii. 
That would be the equivalent of denarii a day's wage. So 300 would have been basically the equivalent of a year's wage for an individual. If you subtract Sabbaths and holy days, which they wouldn't work, that's a lot of money. Take a year's salary, set it aside. That's the equivalent of what she did. It says it comes in, uh, it was about a pound or what would be better said, a Roman pound, which is about 12 ounces. So for you and I, that's like a Coke can. For you non-Southerners, that's a soda can, okay? So about 12 ounces, she busts it open and she pours it over Christ. We know from Matthew and Mark that she anoints his head, but we focus at the feet. Sacrificial love. She anoints his feet. She is demonstrating how valuable he is. It's pure. It's not a knockoff. She takes the most valuable thing she has. This isn't her Equate brand or Clover Valley. This is the real deal. Busts it and gives it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is valuable. And she demonstrates that at his feet. She demonstrates that. And that's what distinguishes that a believer from an unbeliever, they value Christ. They value Christ. Devotion is sacrificial. We're devoted to many things. Our family, our children, our parenting, our jobs, our church, our hobbies, our leisure. We're devoted to many things. And there will be sacrifice to anything we're devoted to. But ultimately, we should be devoted to Christ. We have a wonderful example of that in Mary. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This aroma that came up, the fragrance of this devotion and love she had was a sweet and beautiful picture. There's another example of this at the end of 2 Samuel. David sins. He puts on an unauthorized census, mainly bent out of selfish gain. And as the rebuke comes and as he is called to repentance by the prophet Gad, he tells him to go to an individual named Arana and go to his threshing floor and to sacrifice to him. When he arrives at Arana's place, he says, hey, here's my, here's my threshing floor. Here's the ox. Take them and sacrifice for yourself. David, respecting the king. But David didn't say that. He didn't allow that. He says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Hmm. What a wonderful picture of our devotion to Jesus Christ. It costs us something to be devoted to him. Biblical devotion is costly. But it also is rooted in humility. It's rooted in humility. Mary lets down her hair. This would have been an unfamiliar sight to most. Her glory, if you will, and begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. Culturally, this was only given to the servant or slave of the house. It wasn't a custom for the disciple who was following their master to take on that, that job or task. It was still given to the servant of that house that they would approach. If you remember, John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps to his sandals. 
depicting that, hey, I'm not even a disciple of Christ. I'm a step lower. It's rooted in humility. Mary's acts of devotion is, is rooted in humility. That's a mark of a believer. Paul instructs us in several places in whether Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, Philippians 2, 1 through 3, Colossians 3, 12 through 13, to show humility towards others. But this act of devotion had humility toward God, towards Christ, making ourselves lower. The idea is elevating one above ourselves. John says it best, he must increase, I must decrease. Humility is a mark of devotion. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The question before us is, what do you sacrifice for Christ? What do you sacrifice for Christ? For some, that's your bank account. Others, your position, relationships, hobby, your talent, your time, your mind. All these should be available to Christ. The question is, are they available for Christ? Are you truly devoted to Jesus Christ? There are times for extravagance. But when it comes to Christ, there's no question. We go all out. We give him our best all the time. And I'd hope that our lives represent this humility. My prayer for us is that we can echo the words of the writer of the hymn, I'd rather have Jesus. I pray that this would be our fragrance that comes from us each and every day. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this war world affords today. I pray that would be the echo of our hearts. Our devotion to Jesus Christ would be he is first and he is best. He is valuable and I want to exalt him to others. I mean, what a wonderful season that we're in. I mean, there, there are going to be many that flock into churches next week just because it's tradition. Many who have not heard the gospel, I would hope that your life this week would be a fragrance of devotion to Christ Jesus and that others would see that he is more valuable than anything else. We also see, though, in our passage, the fragrance of criticism. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. The fragrance of criticism. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Mary's act of anointing the Lord Jesus Christ 
would have hushed the room. The smell would have captured the the noses of those present. The act itself would have caused every eye to look on her, and silence would have been the case in the room. But Judas broke that silence in criticizing this act of devotion and love. And really, criticism is a very dangerous thing. According to his life, looking at his life, criticism is a warning sign of something greater. It's a warning sign of something greater. Now, I love John. He's not about spoiler alerts. He doesn't care. He tells you early on, Judas is the betrayer. In John chapter 6, he's talking with some of his disciples. And Jesus even says, he says, uh, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of, this is John's comment, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Yet again in our passage here. This is not just any Judas. This is the one that will betray Jesus Christ. His criticism was birthed out of a heart that was truly opposed to Christ and bent towards himself. The NASB, instead of saying he was a thief or helped himself to it, says he pilfered. So the good things that were given to the ministry that Jesus had, those that would give to Jesus' ministry, Judas was helping himself to it is all birthed out of a heart of greed and discontent. It was all self-centered. His criticism was birthed out of not a true delight in the poor, but actually out of selfish gain. A.W. Pink says he sought to disguise, conceal his base covetousness under the appearance of benevolence. He posed as a friend of the poor when in reality his soul was dominated by greed. Well, that's the case here. It's actually a warning sign to something greater. What, how devastating. As these gospel writers try to recount all the statements, the first words of Judas here is right here. Rebuking, criticizing this woman's devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, criticism can be a warning sign of something greater. Unbelief. Criticism is also contagious. Criticism is also contagious. So very carefully, in Matthew and Mark, it doesn't single out Judas. But it says some of the disciples were grumbling. John lets us know where that began. Criticism is contagious. I mean, think about your church family. Where conflict arises, it usually begins with one who criticizes and then allows that to spread like cancer through a church family. Criticism is very contagious. But in the Christian life, we should know and expect criticism. I mean, as we're devoted to Christ, we'll be called all sorts of names. Fools. Fanatics. As we are devoted to Christ, the world will hate our actions for what we stand for. They'll hate it. Flip over to John 15. It's worth reading this together. John 15, verses 18 through 21. Such a beautiful passage. Jesus is in the midst of teaching his disciples 
most likely in the upper room. And here in verse 18, he begins to talk about the world and the hate that it has for followers of Christ. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your words. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Sadly, it's one of his disciples who's lashing out at this woman trying to mask it with benevolence, his concern for the poor, but instead it shows the root issue. We should know as believers in Jesus Christ, we will receive criticism, especially as we serve and are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in application, considering this, is your critical heart a symptom of something greater? Think about it for a moment. Judas, one of the twelve, seeing from day to day the miracles, present at the feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000, present at the resurrection of Lazarus, present with the calming of the storm, present with Jesus walking on water, present as Jesus preached and taught. Maybe you, member, have been members for years, but your heart is marked by criticism and it's really a symptom of something greater. You've just observed. You've just pilfered for years. But you do not know Jesus Christ. You've yet to repent and believe. This is worth consideration. Am I truly a follower of Christ? I like woodworking. I enjoy building things. I enjoy fixing things. But I have troubles from time to time. After Fixing, building something, I have it in my mind what it will look like, but always what's set before me is not what I planned. Or it might look somewhat good, you know, I mean, it might have an appearance of what I was attempting, especially when I squint my eyes, doesn't look as bad. But we naturally are critical people. I mean, that's a, we just naturally go in that direction. You can look long enough and observe long enough someone or something, you're going to find something to complain about. It's our natural bent to do that. So let's be aware, church family, that that heart shouldn't be amongst us. Maybe that's you. You need to repent of criticism. I mean, the the sad thing is that it doesn't just encapsulate our church family. You can go to our spouses and to our children. 
I mean, isn't that interesting how we criticize those that we love most? So often, this heart bleeds into our lives. Let's be careful as we consider the criticism that we see in the life of Judas. Sweet, though, the fragrance of support in our passage. Jesus does not allow this woman to be rebuked for long. He stands up for her. He defends her and accepts this wonderful offering. Mary's fragrance of belief is what we see was received by Jesus Christ, while Judas's fragrance of unbelief was rejected. He didn't allow for this to go unnoticed, but instead stops the disgust of Judas and others to rebuke them and support this woman in her devotion to him. Jesus accepts your love and devotion. What a wonderful picture in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark recording this story. He says, this story will be told when the gospel was preached. What a wonderful gift to Mary to know that her Savior, Jesus Christ, supported and defended her. I don't know all your circumstances right now. I don't know what you're dealing with throughout the week at work or at home. But it's good to know that Jesus is your support. It's good to know that Jesus is your defense. And sometimes... He might be your only support and defense. That's true for Stephen. A man who served the Lord, stood up for what was truth, preached a powerful sermon in Acts chapter 7, and the response of those around was hatred. Text says they grounded their teeth, were bothered by his preaching says that he saw the Lord, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He had the support of Jesus Christ. When no one else was there to defend him, Christ was there for him. Now, his end was not perfect, He would go on to be stoned at that moment, but he looked to Jesus Christ for his support. Jesus is a worthy advocate. And that's what Jesus is doing. He recognizes, hey, this anointing was for my burial. Jesus wanted all his followers, those that heard his message, to know he was headed to the cross. This was laid aside for my burial. I will die. Those that will believe in me will have life. This is a beautiful fragrance to the passage that Jesus Christ is our ultimate advocate, our ultimate advocate. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, through 6, For there is one God and there, was, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I hope he's your advocate this morning. I hope that you realized that your sin was paid for by Jesus Christ and that you're hoping in that. 
And I hope that's the case. Really, verses 9 through 11 is just a summation of this. The fragrance of belief and unbelief. I think this passage, it's, it's usually disconnected from some text. I know the ESV, it has a subtitle above that. But I think that it plays a part for really two reasons. First, there's kind of a marker. In verse 1, it says, it mentions Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. In verse 9, Lazarus again, they came to see him whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So kind of a bookend to our passage here. Number two is, it's still that same night. This, this crowd of Jews came at this feast to see Jesus, to see Lazarus, to see this man that he had raised from the dead. And then we see this response. Yet again, it's either following Christ or it's opposed to Christ. I mean, their, their reasoning is, we got to have Lazarus dead too. This isn't going well for our story here. How are we to gather those that are leaving and following Jesus? The response for you and me as we see Jesus is either respond in faith or we'll respond in opposition. And my hope and prayer for us, is that we would respond in faith. It didn't matter that a man had been raised from the dead. It didn't matter for some. I mean, think about that. Lazarus, testimony of a whole town and village, dead for four days, and still hatred oozed from the religious leaders and others. At one point, a wonderful story in, in Luke chapter 16. Jesus speaks about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man pleads with Father Abraham, Hey, send Lazarus back so that my brothers will believe. Because if they see a dead man raised again, they're going to believe, right? Not exactly. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone is raised from the dead. The word preached is powerful. And that's what it's at hand. Either you're going to savor and love the Lord Jesus Christ the more you approach him, or your opposition will only grow. The call is to exalt Christ. Serve him. Devote yourself to him. Live unto him. Because he is valuable. He is deserving of extravagant love. But really, in closing, I want you to know that there was a greater love demonstrated by Jesus Christ. The price for sin is one that you and I cannot pay off. No good could ever come from us. Like our best is like a filthy rag. Absolutely nothing good can redeem us from our sins. The cost was valuable. The sacrifice was valuable and that was Jesus Christ. God gave him up 
for the sins of his people. The call is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning.